Amen. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. The beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Human beings really are a piece of work, aren't we? We have eternity in our hearts, and yet our lives just feel so fleeting. We've been kissed with the breath of life, and yet we return to the dust in death. Human beings are amazing, frustrating, astounding, and perplexing breathtaking and bewildering. What is a human being? How can we begin to make sense of ourselves, of each other? Why do we exist? What what are we here for? And we, we began last week in Genesis 1 to start to answer some of those questions as we looked at the origin story of humanity, the story of God, the world, and you. And as we come to Genesis 2 this morning, I want you to imagine Genesis 1 is like the wide-angle camera shot showing us the whole sweep of creation. But even last week we saw, didn't we, how, how the action slows down to look at the creation of humanity, the climax of creation. But as we come to chapter 2, we're, we're now zooming in. We're getting a close-up shot of day six of the creation of the man and the woman. It's like we're, we're, we're double-clicking on day six from, from chapter 1. Um, so, so last week we saw this uh, basic pattern. Human beings living. Oh, on a minute, that's fine. There we go. Um, we saw this basic pattern. Human beings are created under God. God is the crown. Human beings are created under God, but over creation, over the world that that God has made. And what we're doing in Genesis chapter 2, we're we're focusing in on that picture to see what that really means. What does it mean for humanity to live under God? What does it mean for us to live in and over this world alongside each other? So chapter 2 is not an alternative creation account contradicting chapter one. Rather, if you will forgive me a football illustration, we're getting the replay of a goal. That's what chapter two is doing. We're going back to to day six of chapter one and we're getting a replay. We don't see any of the build-up. We don't see any of the context. We don't see the conclusion either. But we're getting the close-up, slow-motion action replay of the creation of the man and the woman, the crucial moment in creation, so that we don't miss it. And as we focus in on the creation of the man and the woman, we're going to see three things about us as human beings, three crucial relationships that help us to understand what we are for. Relationship with the Lord, with the world, and with each other. So first of all, you were made to trust the Lord. 
you were made to trust the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 4, opens a new section in Genesis. Every new section begins in exactly the same way. If you read through Genesis, you'll see these words ten times. This is the account of dot, dot, dot. Every time you see that, it's the beginning of a, of a new section. And it basically means something like, this is what became of. So in chapter 5, verse 1, this is what became of Adam and his descendants, we read. In chapter 6, verse 9, this is what became of Noah and his descendants. And so chapter 2, verse 4 is basically saying, this is what became of the heavens and the earth that God made. That means chapter 2 is mostly here as a background to what we're going to get to in the next couple of weeks in chapter 3. The fall of humanity, the entrance of sin and death into the world. This section is basically here to, to answer the question, why is our world not this world anymore? What's gone wrong? What became of that good world that God created, that we live in this world now. That's what we're, we're looking at. And so our first focus is our relationship with the Lord. We're made to trust the Lord. And that's clear from the way that God is referred to throughout this whole chapter. Always in chapter 2, every single time, God is the Lord God. Look through chapter 2 every single time. Now, uh, you, you know this by now. I've said it lots of times. Whenever you see the word Lord in capital letters, L-O-R-D, all in caps like that, it's there to tell us God's covenant name, his personal name, Yahweh. And that's different to chapter 1. Every single time in chapter 1, it's just, and God said, God said, God did this. But in chapter 2, he's the Lord God. So in chapter 1, God is the sovereign powerful creator of heaven and earth but in chapter two he's not just the sovereign creator but the personal relator the God who is concerned with his people who relates to us intimately and personally in chapter two the creator comes close and we see that in the creation of the man don't we He's formed from the dust of the earth like a master craftsman shapes the clay on his wheel. And then we get this extraordinary moment where the Lord leans in, mouth to nostrils, and breathes into the man his own life and breath. And the man became a living being. It's the first kiss of life. It's a profoundly intimate moment, isn't it? God personally comes near to breathe his own life into the man. That's part of the reason human beings are this strange paradox of earth and breath, of life and dust. We're natural and supernatural. And what it shows us is that we were made for relationship with God. That's what this is all about. We were created out of this intimacy with the Lord, mouth to nostrils, for intimacy with the Lord. 
Only human beings have this spiritual capacity to know the Lord, to enjoy the Lord, to, to love the Lord. And that is how our lives are to be lived in relationship with the God who made us and loves us. That's our first and primary calling as human beings. Before you're an employee or, or a husband or a daughter, anything of that, your first and primary calling is to relate to God. It may be that you're, you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're not a Christian, uh, not living in relationship with the Lord like that, knowing and loving and trusting him. But this is what you were made for. This, this is what life is about. You can't begin to make sense of life apart from this. And so I want to urge you to, to start a relationship with Jesus. That starts by coming to Jesus, saying sorry to him for ignoring him, asking him to forgive us for the way that we've lived without him. But like with all relationships, we, we don't just relate to God however we like. My, my marriage is governed by my vows, by my word. And so our relationship with God is governed by his word as well. We see that in verses 16 and 17. God defines the nature of our relationship with him. But I want you to see our relationship with God is first and foremost defined by freedom. That's what God commands. Verse 16, you are free. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? There is no lengthy list of commands here. There's no out-of-bounds areas. The God of the garden is not some petty lawmaker who loves to restrict us. He doesn't build a wall around his garden paradise to keep us out. No, he invites us in. There's freedom, fellowship, fruitfulness. There is one boundary, though. One tree. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a mysterious tree, isn't it? There's lots of debate about what it is and what it does. I think the point of the tree is that if humanity eats the fruit, now, now notice uh, it's just eating. They're allowed to go near it, look at it, touch it, just don't eat it. But if they do that, contrary to God's word, human beings communicate to God that we don't want to listen to him. We want to decide for ourselves what's right and wrong. No one telling me what to do. I get to decide what's right and wrong in my life. That's what the tree is an expression of, that, that kind of attitude towards God. Not trusting his word, instead going our own way. And God says to Adam and Eve, don't do that, otherwise you'll die. Now, please don't miss the fact that even with that one rule, that one command, this is the most rule-free existence in all of human history. In our society, we live with thousands and thousands and thousands of laws. In Eden, there is one, just one. But why the tree? I mean, why, why even just the one? Why is it there? Now, look, we're not told explicitly, but, but basically, I think, the tree is about giving them an opportunity to trust God. 
That's why it's there. If we're going to live rightly in this world, as God intended for us, we have to trust him. And we have to, to learn to trust him and express our trust in him. But the tree guards their freedom to do that. Their loyalty and love for God is not forced. It's free. Human beings have a choice whether they're going to live according to what God says is right and wrong or whether we're going to choose for ourselves. No one telling me what to do. That's the choice that the tree represents, whether or not to trust God, to trust his word, to trust his goodness. Now, look, um, we're created to depend on God. That's what we're, we're made to do. We, we can't function apart from trusting and depending on the Lord. He, he knows what's good for us. That's what these chapters are designed to show us. That's why human beings who are truly human pray. Because we, we need to depend on the Lord and, and trust him. But our trust in him is not coerced. It's voluntary. We can choose to trust him or not. That's still the same for us today, isn't it? Just as it was for Adam and Eve in the garden. As we come to, to God's word for our own lives, we can choose to trust him or not. At the heart of life is that question. Will you trust God? Will you trust his word? That's the question the tree asks us and just as with Adam and Eve our whole lives depend on how we answer that question on whether we think God is good enough to be trusted but here's what happens if we doubt God's goodness we will grasp and grumble and groan for our whole lives but if we trust God if we trust his goodness even when he forbids things like in the garden with the tree of knowledge and of, of good and evil it means we can live with faith and hope and love for the Lord and for others that's the first relationship then you were made to trust God and secondly, you were made to work the world. You were made to work the world. Um, now, I have to confess to you, I am not much of a gardener. But in our house on Granderson Road, just down there, we do have a little garden. And over the last few years, there has been something quite satisfying, uh, forming and filling that garden with plants, even enjoying the odd raspberry this summer before the caterpillars got to them. Human beings, we've always had this, this close relationship with the ground, with the earth. In Genesis, the man who works the earth, who rules the earth, and who will return to earth after the fall, is himself earth. And because we're made in the image of God, that's the same, isn't it? Because we, we relate to God, who is himself something of a gardener in Genesis 2. In verse 8, it's the Lord himself who's personally planted this garden in Eden. And that's where he puts the man. It's, a, it's not random. This is a careful 
deliberate placement of the man in a perfect environment, just the right kind of place for him. In fact, this garden is paradise itself. The Garden of Eden literally means paradise of delights. And this place is lavish luxury, isn't it? God's garden is not as does everyday essentials. It's filled with trees whose fruit doesn't just look good, but also tastes good. Just think about that for a moment, okay? What need is there for God to create beautiful fruit that pleases the eye? What need is there for God to create delicious fruit that tastes nice? There is no need. But that's the kind of God he is. Not just about functionality, but about beauty. It's filled, abundance, filled with trees like that. When we think of the Garden of Eden, it's easy, isn't it, to think of the boundary, the tree of of knowledge of good and evil. But don't forget the bounty. This garden is abundant, open, free, filled with beauty for humanity to enjoy. It's a life of freedom and fullness and fellowship. God is not a cosmic killjoy. He is not out to spoil your fun. God is passionate about our pleasure. He delights in our joy. And this is a land bursting with it. Filled with all kinds of natural resources. It's got an abundant water supply. In the ancient world where it's often dry, four rivers? This is a place of abundant life. It's got gold, not just gold, gold that's good. I don't know what the difference is. Good gold, precious stones. It's even got this aromatic resin, stuff that smells nice. And carefully placed in this paradise of delights is the man. To live, to enjoy, to delight, and to work. Verse 15, uh, the man is put there to work it and, and take care of it. Literally, to serve it and keep it. Now, it's important to know, isn't it? This is before the fall. We haven't got to chapter 3 yet. Paradise is not leisurely unemployment. And work is not a punishment. It's a good gift to humanity. Uh, even in the paradise of delights. Human beings are designed to to do something. We weren't designed to do nothing and sit around on our backsides. We're made to work the world. Now look, we we are going to get to Genesis 3. I, I realize our experience of that work is fundamentally altered by the fall. But work itself is still a good gift from God. He gives us something that is exciting, rewarding, challenging, fulfilling, to bring order to the world, forming and filling it, to design and develop it, to cultivate and care for it. And Eden's just the beginning. There's a whole world out there for them, waiting to be discovered and dug and distilled and developed. 
And your work has that same purpose. Now, now, let me say, by work, I don't mean paid employment. It may include that, but there's loads of kinds of work that don't include being paid for. It means any kind of purposeful activity in the world. So whether you're um, managing your home or raising children, bringing order from the chaos of their lives, helping to fill the world with people who bear the image of God and reflect what he's like, whether you're working in a warehouse, again, bringing order from the chaos, helping to fill the world with useful products that serve humanity. It's, it's doing Genesis 2. Whether you're teaching, cultivating and developing young minds to understand and appreciate the world we live in. Whether you're studying, learning about the world that God made, getting your head around concepts that will help you to develop the world. Whether you're fixing machines as an apprentice, ordering them so they work properly. Whether you're in a hospital, bringing order and healing to bodies that are broken. All of those and, and more. I could be here for 10, 15, 20 minutes applying it to all of our different situations. All of those places are realms where we do this, where we work and take care of this world and the people that God has put in it. We're like God. We rule over it, bringing order, where we form it and fill it so that human beings flourish. And your work is an act of worship and obedience to God. Remember that the man is there literally to serve and to keep the garden. And in the Bible, serve is another word for worship, and keep is another word for obey, as in keep the commandments. He's there to, to worship and obey. So verse, that's how verse 15 could just as easily be translated. Work and take care, serve and keep, worship and obey. Your work is part of the way you worship the Lord. That's why in Colossians, Paul writes to us that whatever you do, Work at it with all your heart, as if you were working for the Lord, because you are, not for human masters, because you know where you will receive an inheritance from the Lord. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Your work matters. You were made to work the world. And lastly, you were made to partner with others. When we get to verse 18... The man has a perfect relationship with God, intimate and close and personal. He's in the perfect place. He enjoys perfect work. But there is one thing that is not good. Those words ought to really shock us in verse 18. For the very first time in God's good world, something is not good. Verse 18, it is not good for the man to be alone. Now we need to be really careful here to make sure we diagnose the man's problem properly so that we understand God's solution properly. The problem is not that he is lonely and needs a companion, though the woman will be that for him. The text says the problem is not that he's lonely, but that he is alone. And God's solution is not a companion, but a helper. The man's biggest problem is that on his own, he cannot do what God has asked him to do. 
because we're designed to live in partnership with others, to work together. The man is made in the image of a God who is a community of love, Father, Son, and Spirit. So how can he image God if he has no one to love and be in community with? He's made to form and to fill the earth, but he can't do that on his own, especially he cannot be fruitful and multiply on his own. He can't fulfill the commission that God has given him. And so God makes a helper suitable for him. Now, please don't be put off by that word helper. It's not meant to be demeaning towards women. In the Bible, actually, it's most often used of the Lord, as it was in Psalm 146 that Paul read earlier. The God of Jacob is our helper. It's the same word. So it's not intended to communicate inferiority. If anything, it's telling us the man is inadequate on his own. That's the, that's the point. He needs help. And he needs a helper who is suitable for him. It's a really strange word in Hebrew, that, that word suitable. It means like opposite. So he needs someone who is the same but different. Someone who, who complements him. He needs someone who shares his identity but is not identical to him. Then we get this rather strange animal parade in verses 19 to 20, where the man names all the animals. He's being like God in chapter 1, who names everything. But this doesn't happen because God thinks there will be a suitable helper among the animals. He's already said in verse 18 he's going to need to make a helper. He's helping the man to sort of realize for himself that he needs a, a suitable helper. And so I, I imagine this scene a bit like Dear Zoo. Um, parents, you'll, you probably will have read this book with your kids. Hopefully some of you, you know how Dear Zoo works. So I imagine it goes a bit like this. How about this one, Adam? A giraffe! Too tall. Okay, Adam, how about this one? A mouse. No, too squeaky. What about this one? A hedgehog. No, too prickly. That's how, it, that's how it's going, I imagine, anyway. And among the animals, there is no suitable helper for the man. So, the Lord makes one from his own side. Matthew Henry, uh, the, the commentator, says about, about this verse, She's not made out of his head to rule over him, nor is she made out of his feet to be trampled by him. She's made out of his side, equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, near his heart to be loved by him. And we know, don't we, God gets this bang on because of the way the man responds the very first love song in human history, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Adam sees Eve and he cries out, whoa, man, look at her. She's just right for me. This is the one made from me and for me. She's perfect for him. Sharing his identity, but not identical. And so with the creation of the woman, finally, everything is very good. At last, they can image God together, the one who made them. They are two 
and yet they're one. Like the God who made them is three, and yet one. And so they share in loving one another, forming and filling the world together as God intended. Now, I want to say it's it's obvious, isn't it, in verse 24, that, that marriage is the kind of immediately obvious application of these verses. It's the most obvious context for this kind of human partnership. But it's really important we understand this. Marriage is not the ultimate context in which this verse gets lived out. Rather, the the proper, the ultimate context for this verse being lived out is the church. Paul says, he he quotes verse 24 in Ephesians 5. He he says, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to wife. And Paul says, "I, I don't mean marriage. I mean Jesus. And his people. The ultimate fulfillment of verse 24 is Christ and the church. It's seen in the way that Jesus Christ left his father, united himself to us, to humanity, became flesh and blood. He became one of us. And like Adam, Jesus went into the sleep of death, his side pierced. And out of his death and resurrection, a new people is created, a new community is created, brought into being for Jesus to love the church. God made us to partner with others in imaging him, ruling and reigning, forming and filling the earth. Yes, in marriage, it's a good gift of God. Yes, in in families, a good gift of God. But most importantly, in the church. Verse 24 is not saying you have to be married to image God. It's saying that we don't have single sex churches. We do this together, men and women. We're going to think more about that tonight. In God's eyes, if you live as if you don't need other people, if you live as if you don't need to depend on anyone else, you, you, you can do it on your own. In God's eyes, that's not more impressive humanity it's less impressive humanity because we were made to partner with others three relationships with God with the world with each other that's humanity in paradise everything they need to work and keep the garden to worship and serve the Lord they have the perfect environment the perfect provision the perfect partner And they have perfect relationship with God, the world, and with each other. What more could they ever want? But there's a problem, isn't there? As you read Genesis 2, it kind of feels like you're you're looking over the fence at this amazing paradise of delights, and you can't get in. Ever. Ever. There's been lots of different suggestions for a possible location for the Garden of Eden. People have literally gone to try and find it. We're given quite specific geographical details, aren't we, in verses 10 to 14. And yet, surprisingly, no one's ever been able to find it. I don't know if you've ever had that thing where you, you put a postcode in Google Maps and it pops up with this. Oops, something went wrong. And you think, well, I I put in a legit postcode. (laughs) Show me the place. 
oops, something went wrong. You bet it did. You bet it did. Because paradise wasn't enough. Even the paradise of delights wasn't enough. You know the story that they didn't trust God. And in grasping for more, they lost everything. That's why now all of these relationships that we were made for to flourish in are broken. By nature, apart from Jesus, our relationship with God is, is irreparably broken. Our relationship with the world, with our work, is fundamentally flawed. Our relationship with each other. Adam and Eve, they're, they're naked and, and not ashamed. They have nothing to hide. We spend most of our time hiding from each other, even those we're close to. Genesis 2, it's like we're looking out on paradise but we're stuck in a world of blood and sweat and tears. But there's good news in Genesis 2, because I know sometimes Genesis 2, it just feels like a reminder of what we threw away, what we lost. But Genesis 2 is also a reminder of what we stand to gain. Genesis 2, it's not our present situation, but it is our future destination. That's why Jesus came. And unlike Adam, Jesus did not come into a perfect environment. He entered a, a fallen and broken world. Unlike Adam, Jesus was not perfectly provided for. He went hungry for 40 days in the desert. And Jesus had a much tougher test of obedience in a much tougher garden. In the Garden of Gethsemane, even those he partnered with, his best friends, fell asleep and deserted him and left him alone. And yet Jesus obeyed the will of God to go to the cross for us. Jesus came and lived a life of blood, sweat and tears for us. Dying in the cross on, in our place so that you and I might be invited to enjoy paradise. Remember what Jesus said to the thief on the cross? The thief cries out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And the most amazing words from Jesus' lips, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's for you. If you'll trust Jesus. That is your destination if you trust Jesus. That's why when we come to the, the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, that the new creation, it, it has echoes of Eden everywhere. It's like a new and better Eden, a place of rivers and gold and precious stones and stuff that smells nice. Even the tree of life is there. This is our hope. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. 
the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer is there any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with God's people. Amen. We're going to stand and sing together.